Welcome to Exit the Echoes, everybody. My guest in this episode was Chad Foreman. It was a really interesting discussion on Buddhism and meditation practice. We touch on the purpose of meditation, the perennial philosophy, and even Buddha coffee mugs. I do have a favorite part of the interview that I'll discuss at the end, so stick around. So joining us today is Chad Foreman. He is an ordained Buddhist monk and provides teachings and resources through his website, thewayofmeditation.com.au. Chad, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for inviting me on. So after we had talked briefly through Facebook... Um, I started diving into your blog and learned that before becoming an ordained monk, you were a professional tennis player. Is that right? Yeah. Seems like a weird mix, doesn't it? Yeah. An interesting transition. <laughs> yeah. I'll just have to correct you there. I'm, I was a, I was an ordained monk. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've disrobed, as they say, uh, in the Buddhist circles, not technically getting undressed or anything, that I've handed back the robes. I practiced as a monk for about a year okay i lived in a retreat hut in australia at a buddhist center for about six years uh, studying tibetan buddhism practicing with a, a teacher my guru there so i'm not ordained anymore i see so but then you've just continued on with your teachings and everything yeah well, within buddhism there's two ways of practicing you can become ordained or you can practice as a lay practitioner as they say and you still have uh, five precepts, five vows that you take uh, not to kill, steal, lie, uh, that sort of thing. And so you practice as a Buddhist and you also take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So in the, the teachings, the, the teacher and the community. So, yeah, I'm still a practicing Buddhist and I teach. I try to teach in a non-religious way uh, that people can relate to. So I'm a little bit radical in that way. Not so radical these days. A lot of people are doing it in, in a similar way. But uh, I'm not as traditional as, as some Buddhist teachers. Oh, okay. So did you grow up in a religious household? Not really. I wouldn't call it religious. My parents were Christian. They okay. kind of forced me to go to church on yeah. Sunday. <laughs> Even up until recently, at Christmas time, I went to church. But they weren't really that religious. Uh, they believed religion was about being kind, which related to me. So... No, Buddhism was fairly foreign to me as, as an adult. And so how did you come across that um, and make that transition from professional tennis player to devoted uh, practitioner? Well, that's how I got into it was through this mind training of being a tennis player. As a professional tennis player, I was in a squad in Queensland, Australia, and they took us to a sports psychologist who helped us train our minds to keep calm and focused on the tennis court. And that was my first introduction into mental training. Oh, interesting. I had a girlfriend at the time in, in my mid-20s who had just come back from India and met the Dalai Lama, and she was into Buddhism, and she showed me all these books, and I, I started reading them. And I realized a lot of what it was was similar kind of mental training as I was doing on the tennis court, keeping calm, not losing your temper, learning how to focus at will, consciously. And it included mind training in training in compassion and, and loving kindness and, and other things like that, which helped, which helped to overcome anger and temper and uh, mean-spiritedness, things like that. So the transition was the mind training. It, it was For me, I got into Buddhism as, as nearly a competitive athlete, mm. thinking enlightenment thing. I heard you had to train your mind and sit and meditate to do it. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. I, I can train a forehand, a backhand, and I, I can train my mind to be more calm and peaceful. And so that's that's how initially how I approached it. And it seemed like a very natural progression for me. A lot of people say that tennis, 90% of it is mental once you get mm. to a certain level. It's a very psychological game, similar to golf and another high elite athletic sort of endeavors. It's all about the mind. So it was a really natural progression for me to move into meditation and training the mind and going that way. 
Oh, wow, interesting. So when you ended up doing that um, training for tennis, that was kind of the um, the spark moment that, that caused you to, to dive deeper into Buddhism? Yeah, yeah. That was the introduction. So I, well, I've been meditating, I feel, since I was a, a tennis player because a lot of that was mindfulness and being able to focus and being on the moment, returning a serve that's coming at you at like 200 kilometres an hour. You don't have time to think. And as an athlete, I experienced flow states, what they might call being in the zone, which are states of no thought and just pure reaction that is from the skills that you've trained. And so similar concepts were there in Buddhism as well. So for me, it was a very, it felt very a natural progression. But as I got further into it, I realized not everyone was into Buddhism and it was quite a, a small thing in my community in Australia. It's, it's still kind of a small community over here i see in what way would you say that your day-to-day life now is the most different um than it was before studying buddhism okay that's a great question i still get angry i I still have problems one of the biggest things is being able to come back to kind of a default level of calm so I, i will perhaps lose my temper not as much but the difference is if somebody pisses me off it only lasts a minute or so and I can come back to being calm and also being kind. So the anger and the emotions, the, the jealousy and things that you go through during your day just don't last as long as they used to. Like back in the day, something had upset me, it might upset me for the rest of the day or even the week. Uh, I have, you just, there's no way to resolve it. Uh, but now I can resolve it and come back to that, that calm kind of state. Also, there's a little bit more space to respond wisely. Instead of being conditioned and being reactive, I feel there's a bit of space there for me to fill with how I want to react, how I want to respond to people. And even though somebody might say upset me, I I can sort of take that gap and then respond wisely, calmly, kindly. And I find you always, you get further in life when you're kind to people and help people. And, and respond that way as well. So it's it works in my favour yeah. as well, being, <laughs> being kind. Plus, it helps me overcome my own anger. Uh, I think the Dalai Lama says something like, if, if you want to be happy, uh, to be wisely selfish and to think of others. Because the more you think of others and the more compassion and kindness you have, the better your mind is, the more peaceful your mind is, and the happier you are. So in a weird kind of twist, the more you care about others, the happier you are. So I've definitely found that in, in my life that it's just it's way easier to be kind, uh, to be compassionate, to understand people, to try to empathize with people. All those things help to keep your mind calm. Plus the skill of mindfulness and being able to focus in the present moment, like I mentioned, helps you to come back to this default level of being quite centered. So in your, your experience has helped you really step into that gap between stimulus and response to help you stay in the current moment? Yeah, exactly. That's a, a great way to put it. In Buddhism, there's this idea of samsara, which is the cycle of suffering, and it comes from being controlled by your past, controlled by your conditioning, and you're sort of a slave to just stimulus as you mentioned, if something angers you, you just have to respond. You've got no control. But with meditation, you gain that control. You have that gap before you react, and then you can choose consciously based on your values, based on how you want to live consciously and intentionally to interact with others, your partner, your colleagues, everyone that you, you meet. So, yeah, there's that real gap where you can consciously choose and that's the, it's kind of the enlightened way. That's enlightenment, having that gap. So you're just not controlled and you're not a slave to your mind. Uh, you master your mind and you can consciously and intentionally relate to, to, to the world. Interesting. Awesome. So during your study, was there any particular moment or teaching that was a bit of a, an aha moment, something that struck you more so than uh, the rest of the teaching or resonated more deeply with you than, than the rest of it? There was. There was. What I've been speaking about so far has been like how you react, how you respond, being kind, being compassionate, being focused. These are all the basics of Buddhism and and they help people so much. They've helped me, like I've mentioned, therapeutically uh, to live in the world in a calm way. But the aha moment was I came across these teachings in Tibetan Buddhism 
called Zogchen and Mahamudra. And these teachings were about Buddha nature. It's a special series of teachings in, in Buddhism. And it says that your nature is this luminous mind or luminous consciousness. It's kind of like an enlightened consciousness. And the teachings say that it's already complete. It's already enlightened. It's already within you. You can't harm it and you, you also can't improve it. So there's a sense of imminence. And there's nothing that you can do to get there because it's outside of time. It's a transcendental state. And because of that, all the prayers and study and all the rituals that I was doing as a monk and as a practicing Buddhist lost their value a little bit. And I realized I needed to get in contact with that thing that was already complete. So, and I did a retreat on that and I meditated on it and I kind of had a taste of it and that changed everything for me and i moved away from the less religious ritualistic side of things and thinking i had to do things to get enlightened to realizing kind of just have to find and reveal this buddha nature that i have and it's taught that every single person has it as well it's within everybody uh, and that really changed things for me and I also started to teach in that way. I was taking guided meditations and that became the basis of, of how I practice. And it was just a reorientation of how I thought, of how I lived in the world. It really helped me to relax as well because to fully relax in meditation, you have to give up all struggle, all resistance, and there's a lot of surrendering that goes on. So when you believe in this luminous mind that's already there and there's nothing that you can do to get there the path is nearly to relax take it easy let go go with the flow all these kind of things that really resonated with my easygoing nature uh, and that transformed my competitive nature as I mentioned, you know, I wanted to get enlightened and I was doing everything I could to get there and all the practices and training hard, and uh, which was a little bit stressful. <laughs> right, right. Uh, once I discovered this other way, it became easy going. It became natural. Uh, in fact, my teachers call it that. It's called the natural state. It's not manufactured. It's not created. It's, it's sort of just there when you can just be natural and be yourself. Sort of the ultimate just letting go. Ultimately just letting go, yeah being yourself, which was frustratingly simple advice because I'd studied so much of, of philosophy about emptiness and no self and the nature of reality and I thought I had to really nail down on that and, and then the teachers started sort of giving me this, this advice, just be yourself, just be natural, you are already it. But yeah, that was, that was a big turning moment for me. That's so interesting. I understand that you give, um, you do guided meditations through your website as well as um, I saw on there the 21 day challenge. How has your experience been offering this kind of thing online um, as opposed to like an in-person experience? It is different. The online thing is just so amazing how many people I can reach you know, around the world. I kind of got involved in the Facebook boom and I really have reached a lot of people through social media, through my website, and I have people sending me messages and telling me just how much my meditations have changed their life. Oh, that's fantastic. And, oh, it's amazing. It's what I got into it for. You know, I, I really believe in these methods and they really can transform your life. Uh, a lady the other day said, I'm using your 21-day challenge with my seniors community. She, I think she's some sort of nurse or carer for, for elderly people in a community, and they play my meditation every morning. And wow. She, she, yeah, she said this group of elderly people just absolutely love it. She said they love my voice. <laughs> they love the guided <laughs> meditation. It's changed them. It's helped them to relax and be more calm. And, you know, so there's groups out there actually using these meditations that I've I don't even know about this. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really awesome. Nothing can compare, though, to sitting with a group of people in a room in that silence. There is something extra special about being there with people. I have really deep experiences myself, like even deeper than I'd, I'd go in my own meditations when you're with the group. So there is something extra special about sitting with people and connecting with them. And even though you're just sitting in silence a lot of the time, you really do share something very deep. Uh, and, and something happens. 
So it is different, but I like doing both of the the reach I get through the, through the internet. It's just awesome. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like these people are are essentially in a face to face group meeting just with your guided meditation. Yeah. It's kind of weird, yeah. So, you know, my voice is in their head and they listen to me every morning. And I, eh. <laughs> it's a bit creepy, but <laughs> they, they get very intimate with me. They feel like I'm there talking to them, you know, yeah. uh, they're doing my meditations uh, and, and perhaps I don't even know them. Well, I, a lot of them I don't. They just buy my online products and uh, they use them. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird in a way. But when I get those messages from people who have, have been benefited from the, the meditations, it's... It's really heartwarming. It's what I'm in the game for. One thing that we aim for in the podcast is to try to shine light on on the nuances and small details that tend to get overlooked. Um, are there any misconceptions about Buddhism that you've encountered or, or misunderstandings maybe that you'd like to either clarify or, or push back on? The first one is in meditation, people think you have to not think. This is probably the biggest. So I focused on the meditation side of things. I focused on the methods that actually produce results rather than the philosophy as much. I really love giving people these skills and tools they can use. So a lot of people think they have to sit and blank their mind and no thoughts will come and that's kind of what you're aiming for. And because that is so hard, if not impossible, people give up, they get frustrated, meditation's stupid, I'm not doing it anymore, I can't stop my mind. So that, that's a big misperception. There's, there's plenty of room in your awareness for thoughts to be there and for focused attention. So if you can focus on your breath, the thoughts can come and go without you being involved in them and you can still achieve really deep states of concentration and relaxation, even though there's thoughts there. It's kind of like leaving a TV on in the background. You're not watching it. You can kind of hear it. It's going on, but you're not really paying it any attention and it doesn't really bother you it's kind of what happens in meditation so that's one thing the other thing that came to mind is a lot of people think buddhism is this shangri-la this perfect community of you know enlightened masters and you know happy blissed out people i know that's a positive perception of buddhism but it's also a mistaken perception even the masters and the gurus, they're just human beings. They're just living a life. There are practices within Tibetan Buddhism and other types of Buddhism that worship the guru and see them as enlightened beings. And just recently, there have been a lot of scandals with uh, the masters doing the wrong thing, um, sexual misconduct, and that sort of thing. And it's because of the worship, the idolization, and it becomes quite cultish, um, the atmosphere of these groups. I, th I think that's a mistake to, to go into it with that level of worship and holding these people up so so high. There is a practice of seeing the best in people, including your teacher, but including everyone. Everyone's got the Buddha nature. You can see everyone as a potentially an enlightened being or a pure being, and that's a great practice. But in reality, you've got to deal with people's personalities and, and differences. And so that's, I think that's a misperception. I think Buddhists are just like everybody else. They're, they've still got struggles in life. They've still got to pay the bills. They've still got to get on with, with life. And they just use methods like meditation and, and practicing kindness and to transform their own minds and, and to live a, a good life. I think that's a fair warning for people that these gurus aren't the enlightened gods that they're made out to be. They're, they're just human. They have access to amazing knowledge and wisdom. These teachers have often studied for 20, 30, 40 years uh, at their craft and they have got realisations, they have got deep understandings and they're teachers of high value and worth, but they're just not the gods that people think they are. Not long ago I, I went to a small... Um a small gathering of Buddhists um, here in Indianapolis. And uh, it was my first time going to anything like that. And they had um, their leader or teacher, I believe he was from Vietnam. When I would watch him interact with, with people, um, it's much like you and I interacting. It's just very uh, normal uh, conversation and whatnot. But when I interacted with any of the other followers or if he was interacting with the other followers, 
there was a weird thing that was going on that I'm not I couldn't quite understand. They had this kind of blissed outness about them, eyes half closed, speaking like they're almost whispering. I didn't know if that had to do with like um, an effort for uh, right speech. Maybe they're trying to you know maintain the right kind of headspace. But I didn't know if that was a common experience or just something specific to where I was. Yeah, it is common. And it's a beautiful experience to humble yourself like that to someone and see them as enlightened, um, to surrender yourself and, and your own ego and to revere them. There's quite an experience involved there. But like I mentioned, it kind of not like that. These are just ordinary people. Um, and I think we need confidence in ourselves rather than project it all onto the guru, that the guru is great, he's enlightened, he's awesome, but, you know, I'm, I'm nothing, I, I can't really get there. And it's, it's not what the Buddhist teaching was about. In fact, um, the Buddha said, don't worship me, don't. The only way you can liberate yourself from suffering is through your own effort. And that was kind of the sort of revolutionary teaching. And he said the teachings and the methods other things that if you practice will help and save you. No one else can do it for you. Your guru can't tap you on your head and enlighten you. You have to do the work. And just like if you go to uni, you respect your college or whatever, you respect your teacher. You're very grateful that you get the, the wisdom and knowledge from your teacher, but then you've got to go away and, and put it into practice and make it become wisdom, you know, turn that knowledge into wisdom. That for me is the essence of Buddhism, is taking those methods and training them in yourself and getting there. But, yeah, it can be a, a weird situation around teachers, how much they're revered, and that's probably what you experienced a little bit there. Yeah, it was interesting. I was I was really looking forward to, like, everything he had to say and whatnot. Um, I was just a little tripped out by um, the, uh, the blissed outness that I was experiencing. My wife and I, we have um, Buddhas all over the house, you know, B Buddha head statues, um, Buddhas in our rooms all over the place, Buddhist books in my library. Um, we even have a Buddha coffee mug, and that's what kind of strikes me as odd, um, is that if I were to go to the store and see a coffee mug that's Buddha's head, um, much like the one we have, I wouldn't really think twice about it because... It's just in the stores is essentially part of the decorations. But if I were to go to the store and see a coffee mug that was, say, Jesus's head, that would probably stand out quite a bit. And this strikes me as odd. So I didn't know if you feel or maybe in your community, is there a feeling that is it either a that all promotion is good promotion or does it come across as a bit disrespectful to see something like a Buddha head coffee cup? Yeah, it's it's down to the individual how they see it. I, I totally get what you mean. Some people think all those objects are holy objects, sacred, and should be treated with reverence. For instance, you should never put a Buddhist book or a Buddhist statue on the floor. That's seen as disrespectful. And there's, there's holy objects that just touching them and people will touch it to the head and they feel they're getting blessed and I think there's a lot of superstition that creeps into Buddhism and the magical power of, of these things. I think it has become a little bit com commercial, which devalues it. That's one thing. Another thing is this superstitious sort of practice where just being in the presence of a Buddha statue is meant to be a huge blessing and uh, purify countless lifetimes of negative karma and things people will think. Again, because it comes down to you, it's, it's great to have these symbols. For me, Buddha's a Buddha, the seated Buddha, he symbolizes peace and serenity and wisdom. And to have that around your house will remind you of that, hopefully, and will remind you to practice that in your own mind, to be mindful and come back to the present moment and things like that. So to the extent that they help you practice, I think they're great. But if you revere these objects as like holy and magical i think again that's against the original intent of what buddha taught but yeah you'll definitely have some buddhists who think that's it's over commercialized people don't respect them and that they'll get negative karma from it a lot of buddhists will think that way that you probably you know you throw your buddha cup in the dishwasher you probably shouldn't do that like i, I wear a, a mala you know like a rosary bead and i, mm. I count 
count my breath, I count mantras on it. But when I was a monk, the the, the strict nuns would tell me, you can't take that into the toilet with you. you you've got to take that off. It's disrespectful to, to go into the toilet with that. And I respected them and I left my mala outside. I don't, I take my mala when I use the bathroom now. But yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's just different levels of practice, just like in any religion or any faith. You know, some people are more strict and conservative and fundamentalist and other people are more liberal. So it's, it's however you want to take it. I think it's, it's always your own way. Be yourself. Use those things. I don't think there's any problem in using those things. People get tattoos as well of Buddha and Tibetan Buddhist deities and, and mantras and things put on them. Um, people I've spoken to in the Buddhist community think that's terrible and that's disrespecting those images. And, and the same thing, going into the toilet with them or having even having sex with those things on your body, it's disrespecting and, and all this sort of thing. And, but, but I think that's all a bit too superstitious, a bit too religious, a bit too conservative for me. Uh, if you want a tattoo and, and you love that object that much, you want to ink it on your skin, that's great. Go for it. It's inspirational. Uh, might inspire others. <laughs> Who knows? But, again, it all comes back to your own mind. It's how you relate to it. So if you relate to something and you think it's a negative karma and people are disrespecting it, you'll have that experience. It will disturb your mind. You'll get angry from it. But from your own side, if you just see it, everything as an expression of, of Buddha nature and then it's great that people are using it and interacting with these teachings in whatever way they can, you'll be pleased and you'll be happy. So the, the power doesn't come from the object. It comes always from your own mind and how you relate to it. So as long as I mindfully uh, drink my coffee from the cup, it's, a, it's an okay thing. Sure, sure. <laughs> but like if I told you now that it's really bad karma for you to use that cup and, and you continue to use it, it's going to put doubt in your mind and you're going to drink yeah. that cup. No, maybe this is bad, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. So it's, just, it's just what you believe, what you think, you know, how, how you perceive it. But, yeah, if you could mindfully drink out of that cup every time you did it, that would, that would be a sacred object then. It would be helping you to develop your mind and develop your mindfulness practice. That makes sense. I read a post on your blog that was called or titled We Are All God Playing Hide and Seek, which I believe, like you pointed out in the post, was um, reference to Alan Watts. Um, I am a huge fan of Alan Watts. It was essentially like the, the first thing that um, keyed me into any type of Buddhist teachings. So I was wondering, is Alan Watts well known in the Buddhist community? And if so, what do leaders think of his teachings? Because I'd never really seen anything about it. Yeah, I love Alan Watts. He was one of the first people that I read and inspired me. He's a great talker too, a great narrator. If you listen to his stuff on uh, YouTube, he's got a great sense of humour. He, he was a bit radical though. Uh, he had a background in Christian theology. He was well studied uh, in understanding the Bible and uh, I think he was a, a Christian priest, uh, a minister. And then he got into Zen. So there, a lot of people have had the same experience. They got into Buddhism. They got into Zen because of Alan Watts. So, yeah, a lot of people know about him. But he did drink. He smoked pot. He had sex. He was very free. Uh, so he was very controversial as well. And also his interpretations of the teachings were from his own wisdom, his own experience, his own background. For me and so many others, they are very deep, profound interpretations of Zen and Buddhism, which really inspired me. But for others, they're not to the letter of the, the teachings of a certain tradition and therefore it's seen as a bit of an outsider. So, yeah, he is a controversial figure within the community. Most people do know about him and most people will have a, uh, an opinion of him. I guess he's one of those guys that you, you either love or hate as well because he was so rat. For me, I loved him inspired me still still do love him i promote his stuff i've got his writings on my blog yeah so again everyone sees him as everyone's got their own opinion yeah i was a huge fan that i i downloaded um a bunch of his talks from when he lived on a houseboat i think it was and um he was describing the illusion of self and that that was the first time i had ever experienced like my my constant stream of thoughts to just quiet for a second and i was like this is this is unreal. 
yeah, he had such a great way with words and explaining things. He and these are deep, profound teachings of the nature of reality and existential nature of our existence. You know, what is consciousness? What? Who are we? Uh, and he put it in such clear ways that that made it relatable and understandable. So for that, I think he's awesome. And that's also my inspiration is take a lot of these teachings that come from Tibet and India and Japan and they're embedded in those cultures and to extract the knowledge and the wisdom from Buddhism and replant it, I guess, in the Western mind, in our culture, try to take the cultural baggage out of it but keep the wisdom intact. That makes sense. Speaking of the illusion of self, I was listening to um, another podcast uh, that was called The Philosopher's Way where they were talking about Buddhism and they were explaining that it teaches that the idea of self is an illusion. If that's uh, true, that that's one of the main teachings, what does it look like to incorporate that belief into your daily life? This is the crux of it. This is the essential issue of Buddhism. What it looks like is similar to what we talked about before where there's a gap and there's space to react. We're not dictated by some personality or how we should act, you know, from who we think we are. When you take on those no-self teachings and you connect with Buddha nature, which is this luminous awareness, you trust the intelligence of that awareness. So from the moment, instead of responding due to your personality or likes or dislikes, you respond from a place of awareness and it's spontaneous. It's, it's just there and you come from a place of silence within and the answers, the flow just come from that rather than coming from a fixed position of this is how Chad would respond or this is how I should respond. Or It's not that you think that, it's just that that's your conditioning to respond in a certain way and you're free from that once you can just rest in a simplicity of awareness you're free to respond however you like what it looks like in your life it can be very playful because you're not you can do anything at any time you're not dictated how you should react uh, so for me there's there's a, a playfulness to it like alan watts he was always giggling and laughing and i, I wrote a blog called it turns out enlightenment is just having a really good sense of humor because part of having no self is you don't take that self seriously. The, the, the thing that you think you are, the self that you think you are, is not who you are. So at very least, you don't take yourself that seriously. And therefore, there's humor and, and there's lightness in your response. So I think it's, it plays out in reality as being very humorous and playful and very centered and grounded in awareness that becomes your refuge that becomes your place where you respond from just this free-flowing natural clear awareness rather than trying to prove anything or defend anything or defend your opinions opinions don't really matter too much it's just purely coming from a place of openness and, and freedom uh, and yeah so it affects your life in a great way like that that's fantastic I had a question um, about gratitude because I um, saw recently on a Facebook group that I'm a part of, someone posted a video explaining how they thought gratitude was a weakness to uh, kind of a, um, a hurdle to the goals that they were wanting to achieve and whatnot. So for me personally, I tend to worry that if I allow myself or push myself into focusing solely on what I'm grateful for each day um, and the positive aspects of every day, I may end up tricking myself into staying put in a situation that I don't necessarily want to be in or enjoy. I was wondering, what would, what would you say to someone in my position that struggles with that tension there? It's probably a good time to mention these the two levels of teachings within Buddhism, often called the relative and the ultimate level. I've touched on the ultimate level of Buddha nature of a luminous mind, clear awareness. That's kind of who you are already. You're already that. It's just a matter of resting in that easygoing nature. The other level is the relative level that you can train your mind to be more focused. You can train to be more mindful. You can train to be more kind, compassionate, patient, generous, and have more gratitude. All these levels train the mind, which is not you but it's, it's part of your existence and 
even though there's no you, if you have McDonald's all day, you're going to suffer. Like if you eat junk food all day, you're going to get fat. You're going to be unhealthy. And it's the same with the mind. If we feed the mind junk food, it's going to be unhealthy. You're going to get depressed. Your energy is going to be low. You're going to be angry. And that's not the best place to achieve any of your goals or to live your life. So techniques that encourage gratitude, for instance, they're an antidote to a negative state of mind. What would you say would be the opposite of gratitude? Sort of some sort of entitlement or I'm sort of just free flowing here. I'm not sure what the opposite of gratitude is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But gratitude is a positive attitude. There's even scientific studies that show if you're grateful, practice gratitude every day, it lifts your spirits. It it warms your heart. You, You feel in a positive frame of mind. And that is a good place to live your life from. That, that's a good place also to achieve your goals. There's a mistake that thinks the, the, these teachings will create passivity or stagnation. That, that won't happen. When you can get rid of the, the anger, the frustration, the, disconnect, the discontent in your mind, your mind's freed up to be positive, to do things that inspire you, to do creative things all those positive mental states will flow more in your life. So it won't stop you from doing what you want to do or make you become stagnant. It's actually the opposite. If you harbour those negative states of mind, like thinking you deserve everything perhaps is the opposite of gratitude, just thinking that everything should come to you, you don't have to work for it or something. Training in positive states of mind really can help your daily life and it's like having a good diet. It's just having a good mental diet to keep your mind healthy and fit uh, and that's the best place to have good relationships, good work, creative and, and have a good life. So that's how I'd respond to something like that. Fantastic. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think it's a very clear way to put it. It. Uh, like you said, it, I, I agree, even though I suffer from the misconception that it, um, that it might result in some type of passivity or just kind of um, apathy about any given situation. But the way you put it, I think, is very clear. I had a friend in college that took a meditation class, um, and they were, when I talked to them about it, they said that it was actually stressing them out um, because they couldn't stop their thoughts like you had said or and they would actually be deducted points if they shifted in their position during meditation and whatnot um which struck me as hugely missing the point um so i'd like to ask you what is the purpose or or goal of meditation there's two levels like i just touched on there's the mind training level of meditation which is improving your concentration your mindfulness, your, your ability to not be distracted. And, and this is so important in today's world of multimedia and social media. And we're very distracted society. Um, ADD, attention deficit disorder, is huge. It's huge and growing. You know, there's so many kids being medicated because they can't concentrate. So learning to concentrate and to put your attention on what you want to put it on rather than being pushed and pulled around by every distracting thought is a very important life skill, something that you can develop. It improves your life. It's therapeutic. So I would say at one level it is training, something that you can improve on, like playing a musical instrument or playing sport. You know, if you stick with it, you're disciplined, you're patient, you practice the skill, you will develop it. I don't know about that. those methods that you mentioned of deducting points and, and whatnot. That <laughs> sounds kind of uh, weird. Um, but the other level of meditation is the ultimate level, which is about finding that luminous mind, luminous awareness, and just resting in that. And that also finds a type of awareness which is naturally mindful. It's naturally non-distracted, so there's naturalness to it. So those two uh, realms, relative and ultimate, can work together. But ultimately, I think meditation is for discovering that luminous mind. The purpose of meditation is to discover your Buddha nature and to live 
from that place. And there's just those two approaches, the relative approach of training your concentration and mindfulness and also the resting meditations of just resting in the luminous awareness. And I found that they work very well together. And the Buddha taught the combination of the two. He taught the combination of mindfulness and this insight into your true nature. So you have a stable mind that's not easily distracted whilst resting in this uh, nature, this knowledge of who you really are. Uh, And that's the goal of meditation. Awesome. Awesome. So what are some of your um, your teaching methods that maybe help people get uh, or let go of um, a thought or emotion that they seem to be clinging to? Um, I teach Buddhist methods. So in, in a way, I'm just a, a translator of that. So the methods are to be mindful of your breath and your body. And it's being able to detach from those thoughts So initially I thought Buddhism was purely scientific and and rational, which it is on so many levels. But I've realised more I teach and practice myself, there's a a little bit of faith involved in that luminous mind, in that Buddha nature, that you are already perfect, luminous, clear, enlightened being. That helps you, that faith, that trust helps you to relax The methods I teach are the mindfulness of breath, practicing the meditation in a seated posture, in this noble posture where you remain still. I would never deduct points for someone moving or anything. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of is a little bit too stressful and competitive a situation. Uh, A lot of being mindful is being able to accept yourself as you are, as you find yourself. So if you're having crazy thoughts, that's okay. We're looking for a non-judgmental awareness, so not not to judge those thoughts. So I mentioned belief. So you have to believe in your thoughts less. You have to believe that your thoughts are just random, that they can come from anywhere. They can bubble up from your childhood. They can be from some program, TV show you just watched. They can be from what someone else said to you that's on your mind. They can just come from so many different places. Your thoughts are not always wise. They're just random. So initially, it's okay to have thoughts. Just don't believe them or cling to them. So that's a really important point. It's this new relationship you have with your thoughts that you don't, just don't believe them, grasp them too much. And you're free to choose the good ones and the bad ones. So you develop the wisdom and that space I mentioned that, hey, that actually is a good thought. That is going to benefit me and my partner and, and everyone else. And there's those thoughts that come up and, you know, it's a bit childish, that's a bit stupid, I won't go and do that. <laughs> uh, so you can, you can choose your thoughts a little bit more, but you have that detached space from them because you learn not to be so caught up in them and to believe them as much. I see. So that's the, that's the practice of mindfulness and learning not to be distracted and have focus. So if you don't believe in your thoughts, what do you believe in? You believe in your real self this luminous nature, you start to develop more faith in that, just the the wide open space of luminosity in the present moment. So I'm I'm heavy on teaching that side of things where you can just rest in that, you can trust that. You learn to discern the difference between these random thoughts and this clear awareness, Uh, and that's an, an important distinction. You detach from thoughts but you connect and rest in its luminous nature which has intelligence, it has sensitivity to the present moment because you're completely undistracted and you're just absorbing the present moment as it is. Things appear to you in the way they are rather than how you want them to be. So things become clearer, there's wisdom there, there's sensitivity and understanding which creates love and empathy. There's a lot of things in that luminous mind. It's not just a a blank screen which is another misconception. Within this luminous mind, there's warmth, there's loving kindness, there's intelligence, there's wisdom. It's essentially the source of the universe. As Alan Watts says, what created you created the universe. You know, when you look out to the galaxies or you look into a tree or an animal and what Christians might call intelligent design, that there is, there's intelligent design there. It doesn't mean that a person or a God had to create it, but there is that intelligence there and you are that. So 
emphasizing that Buddha nature and that you've got everything that you need within you and just learning more and more to trust in yourself, in your natural self, is what I teach. Nice. And part of that is, is learning to detach from your thoughts through techniques and trainable methods like mindfulness. Would these, ex- these same um, approaches to it uh, uh, help with individuals that may be struggling with um, like an experience of, of trauma or depression or a- any type of addiction? These, these same kind of approaches can be effective for them? Definitely, definitely. This is why mindfulness is so huge these days is because it has been studied for so long now, since the 70s. And a pioneer of the mindfulness revolution was John Kabat-Zinn, who's brought mindfulness into into hospitals and to helping people recover from post-traumatic stress disorder, help people manage pain, help people manage mental health issues. He's been huge in that and there's been so many studies now and they all show that it can improve people's lives. And it's why I haven't thrown out the relative practices, which a lot of teachers, I think, make the mistake of doing and and try to just go to the Buddha nature stuff. It's kind of a very high realisation, a very profound, and and it takes a lot of mental stability just to get there, to be able to find it. Whereas these practices of mindfulness, being able to detach from those thoughts, it's so therapeutic. It's so beneficial just for everyone day-to-day life like i mentioned before about the diet it's just a good mental diet to be able to ignore those stressful thoughts the competitive thoughts the mean thoughts and be centered in the present moment that's extremely therapeutic they call it the new wave of psychotherapy the first wave was psychoanalytics from like freud and then came the behaviorism of skinner and now it's mindfulness. And it's very, very different from the first two. You don't have to look into your past like Freud would do and see how your parents treated you or unpack what your mind's doing and see where it came from. No, you just simply ignore those thoughts and practice remaining present every day, day in, day out. That's your practice. And that's your practice if you're trying to get over mental health issues or just to be sane just to live a sane, good life. You you have to be in the present moment. So many people just live in their heads and their stories and their ideas and they're just never really present with anyone or anything. So for me, it's basic sanity to use these methods to detach from your thoughts. But, yeah, the short answer is it is helping people. It's a mindfulness revolution. It's very therapeutic and healthy for your mind to, to practice these methods. That's fantastic. I read uh, just recently on your post, or uh, read the post on your blog about the perennial philosophy. Um, so I was just wondering if you might be might speak to that a bit and what that means to you. Yeah, it's a great question. But perennial philosophy is, is uh, an idea coined. Uh, I think Aldous Huxley. I think someone in the seventies coined the phrase, but it came from an idea in India that there's an ancient mystic teachings about this Buddha nature and it's found in every different religion that all the mystics, doesn't matter what religious tradition they followed, they eventually came to the ground, the very base of their existence. And what was there was a type of consciousness or what I've been calling luminous mind, which is connected with everything. So it's not bound within your body or your brain, it's, it's way deeper than that. Even the quantum physicists back, back in the day have found this unified field theory, found that in physics, there's this unifying field of awareness or intelligence at the heart of every single matter, every single physical object. And that's the perennial philosophy. All the mystics have found it, they've experienced it, and they speak about it in slightly different ways, even calling it God. Uh, these days, like Neil Donald Walsh and and others that are calling this the ground of our existence, this unified field of awareness. Perhaps that is what the Christians are referring to as as God. So that's the perennial philosophy that every single tradition and there's a mystic uh, lineage that finds this ground of being uh, that's this clear awareness. And even our modern scientists are starting to touch on it as well. Uh, it's perennial because it's just so ancient. You find that in all the ancient scriptures, as far back as you want to go, the Vedas, 5,000 years old, 
It's in the, the Christian uh, mystic traditions, um, the Kabbalah. It, it's in, um, yeah, even the Muslim tradition has it. That it's within every tra- tradition, the perennial philosophy. And that's what I'm very excited about because that's what I think Buddhism, it's very skillful methods to find it through meditation and, and rest in that nature. Uh, it's the oldest spiritual tradition known to man. Yeah, when I saw that on your on your blog, I got really excited. I was like, I'm going to have to dig deeper into this because it it was just so well put, so well explaining like what I feel like so many people are like trying to get to. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a book called The Perennial Philosophy, and that goes into it in depth, and it's very worth reading. Yeah, it draws all these different traditions together in this way that I think people can understand and, and relate to. Awesome. Well, my guest today was Chad Foreman. You can find all his teachings and resources at thewayofmeditation.com.au. Chad, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on, Justin. It's been a great discussion. Awesome. Thanks again. All right. Cheers, mate. Special thanks again to Chad Foreman for appearing on this episode. Again, you can find a direct link to his Facebook page and blog in our show notes. Take a listen to his guided meditations. They really are fantastic. As I said, my favorite point in the interview was when Chad was describing the playfulness he experiences in our Buddha nature. Between that and how he explains the ease and the relief he experienced when he realized that there wasn't anything he had to do to obtain this Buddha nature, it makes me feel like the whole thing is just waiting there with open arms, ready to play. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. the echoes twitter at ete underscore podcast and instagram at ete podcast group you can hear and subscribe to our show on itunes Podchaser, pocket cast podcast republic and just about every other podcast outlet thanks for listening